Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's time for the Culture Club and we are joined by one of the preeminent spy fiction novelists. Mick Heron is with us. Mick, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Delighted to be here. I have to admit, I've actually started watching Slow Horses on television, the Uh adaptation from your series of books. But as an author, do you mind me telling you that? Would you prefer if I'd read the books before I got to the TV show? No, no. I think that the TV show has done a wonderful job of um, bringing new readers to the to the series. But also, I'm, I'm still quite gobsmacked by the, uh, the the fidelity to which they brought the books to the screen. Not so much the plot, which they have stuck quite closely to, as the um, as the tone and the the appearance of it all. Um, they they they've got the characters just right. And, uh, that must be matters. gratifying to you, is it? Because I almost imagine it must be a concern to an author. You create these characters and you hope that people will see them in a certain way. You sign over the TV rights and then the people doing the TV show change them. Um, I think we can, all, sure, we can all think of examples where you know books we've loved have turned into television adaptations or, or movies that we've hated. Uh, but I think that's a lot to do with the fact that we love the books in the first place um, and feel very uh, possessive about them. So, you know, adaptations are, are on a sticky wicket in, in many ways. Um, but the producers of um, Slow Horses, right from the very start, were very keen on, on putting the book on screen rather than simply taking some ideas from the book and adapting them to the screen. And do television suit adaptations better than movies in that it gives you more time and space to get the full context of the book? I think that's true now. I mean, certainly over the past decade, maybe a bit longer, uh, television has overtaken uh, cinema as being the um, uh, where all the really good work is being done. Okay, and tell us a little bit what makes a good spy fiction book in your mind. Oh, God, I don't know. I wish I did. I Come on, you've written that. many great <laughs> ones, so you, there must, you must have a, a formula of some kind. Or do you have a formula? Do you have a, a desire to do things based on your reading of other spy fiction books? Uh, I do think that um, writing in any in any form, but particularly perhaps in, in genre fiction, you're taking part in a dialogue and responding to other other books that you have read and loved. Most of what I'm doing now, though, is is trying to take the characters that I've created and, and push them forward and see what uh, see what happens to them next. Why did you go for spy fiction? Um, largely because uh, I'm I'm very research averse, and uh, with spy fiction, you can make all kinds of stuff up. If I were writing police procedurals, for instance, I'd have to know things. I'd have to do a lot of work and get everything right because you do get emails from readers. Uh, but whereas with with spy fiction, you can make anything up, and people assume you know more than you actually do. So you do get emails because I was reading about you that you only got Wi-Fi installed in your house for a lockdown. Uh, when lockdown struck, I, I moved into a house that has Wi-Fi, but I still work in, uh, in my old apartment, which has no internet, no Wi-Fi. No. Why not? Too much of a distraction, really. It's a, it's a thief of time, isn't it? I prefer to focus on the work when I'm there. And I believe you don't carry a smartphone either. I don't, know. I have an old... An old uh, do you still write on a typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> no, I use a quill. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's go to your choices. And we ask every guest on the Culture Club to start with the first piece of music or first single that they can ever remember buying. And I love your first choice. This is a really cool first choice to have. Wings, Live and Let Die. Tell us about getting that and why. Um, why? I don't know. I mean, it might might have been associated with the with the movie. Uh, it. In retrospect, it's very appropriate, I suppose, that I that I have that to um, famous to fall back James on. Bond yeah, movie. Yeah, um, I was, you know, 
a Beatles fan and uh, and Wings were, were grand too in their day. It's still a great tune, isn't it? It sounds wonderful. It is. It's got that great epic feel. So let's hear a little bit of Live and Let Die. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say Great, epic, live and let die. Nearly 50 years old now, that track. Oh, don't, don't. Yeah, it's incredible to think, actually, that it's aged so well. I think it's even been used in things like X Factor for younger generations. Do you listen to a lot of music? If you try and avoid distractions when you're writing, would you have music on when you're writing? I do listen to music, but it's a long time since I listened to uh, rock or pop, really. I don't like um, songs with lyrical content. Um, I don't like other people's words in my head when I'm trying to work. They just distract me and I would find, I would end up using them in what I was writing. So I listen to now a lot of um, jazz, mostly contemporary jazz, uh, contemporary classical as well, stuff without words or without words that that I would understand anyway. I have, you know, some choral works that I'll listen to, but that's the sound of voices rather than actual words that I'm listening to. So does that bring us to our favourite band or artist that you've nominated, Keith Jarrett? Uh, yes, yes, certainly. I've listened to a lot of his stuff over the past few years, uh, and you see here you've picked one of the uh, one of the standards. In fact, what I mostly listen to with him is his um, are his improvised uh, live recordings, where he just sits down at a piano and and plays. And uh, I'm constantly astounded by the by the wealth of uh, of um, music that pours seems to pour from him. He's an extraordinary conduit of melody and. Uh, and, and sound, lovely stuff. So when you say one of his standards, we have a track called So Tender. So let's just hear a bit of that.
while since anyone has picked a bit of jazz for us on the Culture Club here on The Last Word. That's Keith Jarrod and So Tender from Standards Volume 2. When you're writing though, Mick, are you aware of the music or does it just sort of become part of the background as you concentrate on what you're writing? Uh, it, it becomes part of the background, I, I suspect. I do listen to it. Certainly when I put it on, I choose you know what I'm going to listen to. Um, and then after a while I realise that the CD is finished and, <laughs> and I'm still working. Um, you're still on CDs. You're not streaming. I well, as I say, I don't have uh, Wi-Fi in the place where I work, so it's of course I still I still use CDs. Yes, I'm very old school. Well, then, what about a favourite album? You you found this a bit difficult, did you, to sort of nominate a favourite album as such? I find it difficult to nominate favourite things because I think as one grows older, certainly you know, as far as culture is concerned, you know, the more you imbibe, the 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 older you get, the more experience you have of different things. You your list of favourites sort of expands there's no individual favorite there it's a different thing for a different mood i suppose uh, but as it happens the other day uh, a, a young person i know was had on uh, a playlist um the whole of Celia dan's first album can't buy a thrill which when i was a teenager i listened to over and over again and i would certainly back then have had had favorites and Celia dan would have been way up there and can't buy a thrill probably would have been would be my favorite album from that album let's hear do it again <laughs> In the morning you go gardening For the man who stole your water Then you fight till he is gardening But they catch you at the border And the mourners are all singing As they drag you by your feet But the hangman isn't hanging And they put you on the Steely Dan, do it again from the album Can't Buy a Thrill. Mick, we've had quite a few people nominate Steely Dan as their favourite. What was it that appealed to you as a teenager that you still like about Steely Dan? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, they're a very clever band uh, and uh, lyrically was very interesting. And the fact that with every album they seem to be doing something different and going off in different directions. Uh, very much musical perfectionists. Um, Good stepping stone into you liking jazz perhaps as an adult? I guess so. I mean, certainly by the time they recorded something like Asia, they were playing around with jazz uh, and using, you know, saxophones, for instance, a lot. Um, so I suppose so. It's a sort of gateway to other kind of musical worlds and other directions to uh, to follow. Are you a big gig goer? No, I was when I was much, much younger, but I don't do big events now. No. Okay, but you have one that you want to recall for us. And again... So many people have memories of Bruce Springsteen gigs. Uh, David Putnam told us of one from the 1970s that oh, wow. he remembered wow. and loved. You've gone for one that you can't remember exactly when it was the early 80s. I think it must have been 1980. I do think it was the third gig he'd ever played in England. He'd done two in the late 70s, which we gather didn't go very well, or there was, there was some... Uh, I think the gigs were fine, but he was very unhappy about doing them. There were all these posters over London with, you know, the future of rock and roll, and he didn't like that. I gather he went round and tearing them down at night. 
Uh, but he came back a few years later with the river and he opened his tour um, at Newcastle City Hall. I grew up in Newcastle. And uh, tickets were like gold dust then. I was very lucky to get hold of one. And uh, it was just wonderful. I still remember it. Uh, still remember it very He's well. an amazing live performer, isn't he? Possibly even better live than listening to the records. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess so. Um, and then he was, um, you know, he was still in his 30s then, so he had a lot of energy. It was he a still, very long year. I saw him a couple of years ago, even in the 70s now, he has an enormous amount of energy still. Yeah, yeah. We don't have anything from Newcastle, but from around that period, 1980, uh, let's hear from live at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, and this is Incident on 57th Street. As a novelist, McCarran, is that one of the reasons that Springsteen appeals to you, that he's a storyteller in his songs? I think that must be part of it, but um, it's the, the whole thing, really, the band, particularly when, you know, songs like that, where the whole band are there, right from the, the first piano note, so you know who it is. And uh, there's something about the way they perform together. I love those live recordings. Mick Heron is with us for the Culture Club. We need to take a break and we will be back with more after this. Welcome back to the Culture Club here on The Last Word in Today FM. It's Mick Heron who is with us today. You may be aware of the Slow House Thrillers, which are a series that has been compared 21st century version of John Le Carre, it has been said. And of course, there's a TV series now which stars Gary Oldman as the key character Jackson Lamb. Mick, let's go to movies because, again, we asked you, Nominate and you're not into lists as you told us with music earlier but do you watch a lot of movies and would you like spy fiction movies for example uh, I watch all sorts of movies I certainly would enjoy um, watching spy thrillers yeah. uh, John Le Carre adaptations those sort of things how well, well do they work we've mentioned Gary Oldman I mean his version of uh, Tinker Taylor starring Oldman as George Smiley for a few years ago that was tremendous Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it but the one that you've nominated from recently that you've really enjoyed is Coda so remind us about that because that's um, a recent Oscar winner it is it's about um, a, a young woman who's um, the only uh, non-deaf person in her family she's a child of deaf adults is what Coda stands for and she wants to make it as a singer so obviously there's a certain amount of conflict there going on but it's it's a very benign film it's, uh, it's beautifully done it's very moving and it has wonderful music in it but let's hear a clip where Ruby and Miles rehearse together did you work on the song? Mm-hmm. Good. Blow my tiny mind. 
breathe in. You did not work on this. We did. Just not like together. Dios mío. Duet. It's in the word. You must do it together. Face each other. Come on, face each other. You're afraid of her. You're wise. Come on, he doesn't have piojos. Guys. This is not the Pledge of Allegiance. It's a love song. A love song. Try to imagine what it's like to, to sacrifice everything for another human. Okay? So again? No. Of course again! You go first, Miles. Okay? Let's take it from the verse. Ready? Like the sweet morning dew I took one look at you and it was plain to see you were my destiny Ruby! With my arms open wide I threw away my pride I'll sacrifice for you Dedicate my life to you I'll go where you lead Always there in time And when I lose my will You'll be there to push me up the hill There's no, no looking back for us We got Good, good, good. Uh, uh, in the, the chorus, try the, the harmony up. Go, no, no, no looking back. For us. Got it? Cool. Good. I'm going to downgrade this. Go work and come back. Thank you. It's actually a movie I haven't seen yet, so... Oh, well worth it. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. Um, is music a big part of it? Yes. Okay. Let's go to TV show. And again, one that's been nominated many times and I heartily approve. Although it's many years now since it was on, you've nominated The West Wing. Why so? For all the obvious reasons, you know, beautifully written, beautifully acted and full of um, idealism in politics, which I think we all need a bit more of given how dreadfully we've been treated by our political leaders over the past decade. Because even at the time it was popular, there were people who liked to sneer at the West Wing for being too idealistic of and course. being unrealistic. I don't think it was ever intended to be thoroughly realistic. Although it does have its moments, I think. Um, there's, there are plenty of moments in the West Wing where they fall short of what they're trying to achieve because of political obstacles in the way. I mean, it's not all triumph by any means. But it's that sense of wanting to do the right thing, which is core to um, the the whole ethos of the West Wing. And uh, that's, that's admirable. Let's hear a clip. One of the famous walk and talk scenes where President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, defends an improvised speech. Toby! Sir? What'd you think? I thought my work was outstanding, Mr. President. I thought you would. Thanks for asking. Couldn't help but notice you got a little extemporaneous there in the D section. Oh, you noticed that, did you? Yes, sir, I did. Yes, I did a little polish right up there on my feet. Yes, indeed. Right in front of everybody. <clears throat> I looked to the side at one point, you know, I half expected to see you coming at me with a salad fork. Well, but for the Secret Service agents restraining me, yeah. sir. Thank God for the Secret Service. Bless hey there, heart. fella. She deserves a nice room <laughs> and some supper. Sure. You like doing that, don't you, sir? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Charlie. Yes, sir. 
What did you think of the speech? Me? Yes, you. Uh, it was. He means the text of the speech, Charlie, discounting the improv and the D section. I mean the entire speech, Charlie, and in particular the delivery. I thought it was excellent. See? See, <laughs> See I think what Charlie's trying to say is that in this case, the singer outdistanced the song. Really? Uh, what I heard Charlie say was that the text was user proof, although you did your level best to, to disprove that in the D section. You know what, Toby? Sir. You're what my mother calls a pain in the ass. Well, that's what my mother calls it, too, sir. Uh, oh, Mr. President. Yes, Charlie, by the way, did the First Lady call? The First Lady called at 840, sir. She wished you luck and told me to tell you to take your back medicine. My back is I fine. I have it here, sir. Those damn things make me goofy. You brought this thing quite adamant. I describe her tone as being... You don't have to describe her tone to me, Charlie. I've been married to it for 32 sir, years. I don't want to get in trouble with Give the First Give me the medicine, Charlie. Thank you. Have a good night. I'll see you in the morning. Yes, sir. Thank you all. Of course, a big part there for Richard Schiff as a Toby Ziegler. Uh, Richard, who, of course, has been a guest many times here on the programme over the years. Uh, it's that sense. I see an awful lot of the actors now are involved in Democratic Party causes at present and getting involved almost as activists in the political process. Is, is that an appropriate sort of move on, do you think, for them to do that? Well, you wouldn't ask... Um George Clooney to do an operation, would you? Just because he'd been in ER. So it is a, it's a bit strange. But I don't know. I mean, these people probably spent years working with political advisors, you know, on being trained how to how to act in these roles correctly. So maybe it is. And politics is open to everybody, isn't it? So. It is. And Richard, in particular, has been on talking about politics on this programme. is very, very sharp. I'd be very happy on. for Martin Sheen to be president of the United States. So I'm sure many people... <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's go to books. And... I know we asked you to nominate a book and you have picked out one for us and we'll talk about that. But we will talk about other books because I know it's unfair to ask an author to just nominate one. But there's one that I actually haven't read. I'd say it must be 40 years ago that I read it. Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith is one that you've picked out. Why so? Uh, As a thriller, I don't think it's ever been bettered, really. It's a tremendous piece of work. Uh, an American writer writing about um, a, a Moscow investigator. This is in the days of the Soviet Union, obviously. And it's just tremendous. It's so atmospheric and so the, humane, I think. Arkady Renko, his, um, his hero, is uh, a beautifully drawn creation, somebody that all readers surely can sympathise with utterly, a, a lone man uh, trying to do good in a, in a system that's largely corrupt and not, not properly working. Um, and it's just a deeply exciting, very clever plot. And I mesmerised it. I must have read it four times at least, and I mesmerised it by it every time. Let's hear a scene from Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith, narrated by Henry Strozer. Over his shoulder, beyond the Donskoy Monastery, the night was fading. He saw Levin, the militia pathologist, watching contemptuously from the edge of the clearing. The bodies look like they've been here a long time, Arkady said. Another half hour, our specialist can uncover them and examine them in the light. Someday, this will be you, Priblet appointed to the nearest body. Arkady wasn't sure he'd heard the man correctly. Bits of ice glimmered in the air. He couldn't have said that, he decided. Priblet's face turned in and out of the light of the headlights, a card half up a sleeve, eyes small and dark as pips. Suddenly, he was discarding his gloves. We're not here to be taught by you. 
distributors straddled the bodies and began scooping away dog fashion, throwing snow left and right. A man thinks he is hardened to death. He's walked into hot kitchens covered from floor to ceiling in blood, is an expert, knows that in the summer people seem ready to explode with blood. He even prefers winter's stiffs. Then a new death mask pops out of the snow. The chief investigator had never seen a head like this before. He thought he would never forget the sight. He didn't know yet that it was the central moment of his life. Just something that strikes me there, Mick, listening to this. A friend of mine, an author, recently recorded his uh, novel for audio and wanted to make changes for the audio version on the way to make it sound better and was told you can't do that. It has to be exactly as it's written, which he found very frustrating. When you're writing now, do you ever actually think about how it would sound as it's read? Uh, I do, I do, because I write for the ear, I think. Uh, rhythm is very important to me as a, as a writer. Um, so that, it's not, I'm not writing to the shape on the page, I'm, I'm writing to the, the voice. So uh, I do, I do think about that. And um, you have to be aware uh, of how things are going to sound out loud because you want to avoid um, repetitions and accidental rhymes, things that can make prose sound off or, you know, a bit ridiculous even sometimes. So you have to watch out for that kind of uh, uh, error in, in writing. What do you read? What do you love reading? Uh, I read mostly fiction. I read a lot of fiction, not all crime fiction by any means. I read a lot of uh, ma mainstream stuff. Uh, I read verse. I'm uh, a fan of poetry. You were originally wanted a career as a poet, I believe, did you? Oh, sure, I ever wanted a career. That's quite hard to come by in the poetry world. I did write verse before I started writing prose. Um, and it, I think it's affected the way I write prose. I think it gives you uh, an awareness of the, of the weight of individual words and, as I say, rhythm, which is important to me. Um, so, yes, uh, I... I if I hadn't found that the poetry had dried up, I probably would have continued with it and I, I wouldn't be here now talking about these things. When you say it dried up, what happened to you? I just stopped being able to do it for some reason. I don't know why. I suddenly realised the gaps between uh, the poems became longer and longer and uh, ultimately no poems seemed to be appearing at all. I never wrote that much, but you know, it was, it was a constant... Um, wouldn't want to call it an obsession, but it was something that I was constantly aware of and, and wanting to do more of, but I stopped being able to do it. Qu quite a jump from poetry to spy fiction. Not as much as you would think. Why not? I think that um, writing is... You, you focus in writing on the things that matter to you, and as I say, it's the, it's the sound of the language and the, the use of words that matters to me most. The fact that I'm writing spy fiction is incidental, really. Uh, if I wasn't writing spy fiction, I'd be writing something else, and... The, the things that I would be trying to bring to it, whatever else, or this would be the same as I, as I am working on now. Just to finish, well, this will be a quick one because we asked you for a favourite play or theatre <laughs> show or musical and you said you weren't even going to try and attempt one. No, no, I, I don't go to the theatre very often. I, I did, you know, a long time ago when I, was, when I was younger. I tend to avoid events like that. Now I don't really like being in crowded places very much. Okay, well, that's fair enough. So you, you get the opportunity to enjoy the things where you want, 
when you want. Okay, Mick Heron, it's been great having you. Thank you very much uh, for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM on our Culture Club. And of course, you're probably familiar with the Slow House Thrillers, uh, which he has written. That's it for today's programme. We will be back tomorrow at half past four. Until then, for me, Matt Cooper, have a very good evening. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.